Thank you for joining us this evening. My name is Alexi Glass-Cantor, and I am the Executive Director of Artspace and the Chair of Contemporary Art Organisations Australia, or KO. And before we go any further, I'm just going to hand over to Megan Cope to pay respects to country. Thank you, Alexi. Um, I'm a Kwandamooka woman, and um, we would like to acknowledge the Yalakutwilam people as the traditional custodians on the land which we meet. Uh, the Yalakutwilam people are part of the Bumurang Nation, one of five major language groups in the Greater Kulin Nation. So we pay our respects to their land, ancestors and elders past and present into the future. And I'd just like to add that Abri Aboriginal sovereignty never ceded in Australia. I always thank you. I think we want to give a round of applause to that. Because, <laughs> yeah. Um, look, thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's really wonderful to be able to do the second public program that Contemporary Art Organisations or KO has ever been able to present. I hope I'm speaking close enough into the microphone. Um, Basically, I just want to give you a bit of an overview. You know, we talk about things we do together, how to support sustainability and collaboration through independent artist-led and the not-for-profit sector, and what does that really mean? And I think, you know, the reason that we're doing this public program is I just... Contemporary Art Organisations Australia has been in existence for nearly 25 years. We're made up of 14 organisations representing every state and territory in Australia. Many of our organisations have histories of between 25 up to 100 years. And the network has been through extraordinary change, particularly not only in the past 25 years that we've been meeting twice a year to discuss and examine the landscape, but very particularly in the last two years with substantial changes to the landscape around funding, sustainability, operations, advocacy, how we support and develop and provide investment in the work of artists, how we support the building of new audiences, what these organisations do and who they do it for, how are we accountable. And something we did two years ago was when Brandis sent through the message in 2015 that 25% of the Australia Council's funds were to be redirected to establish now defunct Catalyst, KO quickly organised to produce together data um, with our members to advocate as to what the contribution of the small to medium sector is in real terms through a business case that was used by the Australia Council to advocate as to why neither funding for artists or funding through key organisations and the visual arts and craft strategy should be um, unravelled or destructured. At that point, the Australia Council was looking at either losing funding for artists or losing funding for organisations in its entirety as part of how they were trying to think about the restructure of what funding would achieve. <laughs> all these people, I love Melbourne, you all come out. Thanks for coming out on a rainy day. And look, I just wanted to quickly just outline to you, because I think what's important before we go forward tonight is to really talk about diversity. And we speak a lot about an arts ecology and what an arts ecology means and what it is. And we have a really, you know, wonderful opportunity with all conference being established to bring together the artist-led initiatives across Australia in a kind of peer platform and a network to work in parallel and collaboration with KO to think about what advocacy looks like. But I do want to just talk about strategically what we did when we pulled together the report in 2015 to advocate to the Australia Council as to why funding shouldn't be taken apart for either organisations or VACs. We looked at the fact that between 2012 and 2014, despite static funding, KO member organisations were accountable for 3,900,000 3, visitors um, with exhibitions and galleries and off-site venues, including regional, interstate and international galleries. We commissioned over 900 new works and supported over 6,500 artists through exhibitions and public programs and developed works by Indigenous artists numbering in excess of over 500. We, you know, are producing more than we can produce. We punch well above our weight. You know, basically the 14 chaos organisations receive a third of their funding comes from federal and state and equal to that is generated, self-generated revenue through philanthropy, partnerships in private giving and um, benefaction. So we are dollar for dollar matching the investment of government in what it is that we are producing. Nobody is asking for handouts in the sector and I think every artist and every organisation in this ecology is working hard to be sustainable, ethical and accountable to demonstrating that the resources that are invested are given back tenfold. But what does that really mean? How sustainable are we? There are pressure points um, that have to do with the expectation 
of what people are expected to produce. There are increasing accountabilities across state and federal funding agencies that have now derailed an idea of arm's length funding and turned it into funding outcomes against particular key criteria. And how sustainable are artists and organisations going to be to invest in risk-taking and experimental work if we're currently and consistently only thinking about sustainability and the bottom line? And is the bottom line at odds with the idea of risk experimentation and critical ideas and how much we actually fervently believe that at this level that there always needs to be at every stage of an artist's career an investment in risk? So with that in mind, I have a really amazing panel of people who thankfully you outnumber them, which is good. <laughs> On this rainy Monday night, that was always a peril. In Sydney, only three of you would turn up. Um, <laughs> and I can say that having been here for 10 years. Um, so I just really want to quickly introduce the panel. And I would like to introduce first Shannon Goodwin, who would be known to many of you as the director of BUS, the founder of All Conference, based in Melbourne, but originally from Brisbane, where he was the founding co-director of Box Copy. And he is an artist and art worker with extensive experience in the artist-run sector. And so Something that was key tonight for us was to partner with All Conference in presenting this program. With All Conference being set up and operating now for just over 12 months, it's an amazing opportunity for KO and All Conference to work in a really collaborative way to provide effective advocacy. So we'll hear from Shannon in a moment. I'd also like to introduce, we thought it was important to have two artists on the panel. So I'll go first to Megan, who introduced herself a moment ago as a Kwandamuka woman from North Stradbroke Island in southeast Queensland. Works by Megan have been presented in numerous independent independent, not-for-profit and artist-run initiatives both in Australia and abroad. And I think the important thing too with Nicholas Mangan on the panel, an artist with a career spanning over 20 years, Nick has exhibited extensively in Australia and internationally with his practice frequently moving between the not-for-profit independent museum commercial gallery biennial and festival sector. The reason we wanted both Megan and Nick on the panel this evening is because both of them understand that now what the ARIES and the not-for-profit and independent sector do is they support artists at all stages of their careers. And this idea idea of innovation being tied to emerging artists has changed and the idea of what these organisations do has changed and the way that artists come back through these organisations is quite important to speak about. I want to introduce Charlotte Day who would be known to many of you but she's Director of Monash University Museum of Art but formerly Assistant Director at Gertrude Contemporary, Director of the Centre, former Director of the Centre for Contemporary Photography and formerly Associate Curator at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. So she has experience in three of the KO organisations that substantially contributed towards her professional development and can speak in a unique position with 20 years of observing how the sector has changed. I also want to introduce three of my fellow KO peers. And to my left here, I have Makala Tai, who is the director, a curator, researcher, and academic specialising in contemporary Asian art and, design, and Australian design. Over the past decade, Makala has collaborated with local, national, international organisations to strengthen ties between Australia and Asia. And she's an incredible advocate and the director of 4A. And it was fantastic that she moved up to Sydney for that role. I'd like to introduce Patrice, who would be known to everybody in this room, but I am going to say that she is the director of West Space. Really? And, <laughs> I didn't know. Well, you know, Patrice would have to be a national treasure in Melbourne. I, I, loved, I loved knowing you down here. Um, Liz, Patrice is um, a member of KO and All Conference and has contributed widely to Melbourne's independent spaces and publishing platforms, having written for Discipline and Art Monthly Australia and was assistant curator at Monash University Museum of Art. She was formerly a member for UNS Advisory Committee and served on the board of TCB. So I think she you know, provides a special insight into that relationship that exists between a transition from artist-led to institutional framework. And Liz Knoll who has had a remarkable 12 months, and it's her birthday today. So, yay! It's incumbent upon all of you to buy her a shot later. Um, especially after hearing about the year she's had. But, um, but Liz is the director of the new entity, Ace Open. She's based in Adelaide and tasked with the challenging role of recently merging two of Australia's oldest and most respected independent spaces, the Contemporary Art Centre of South Australia, CAXA, and the Australian and Experimental Art Foundation, Eve. Liz brings unique experience to the new entity, Ace Open, from her previous roles at Tandanya, Country Arts SA, and Hazelhurst Regional Gallery, among 
Thanks, Mehdi. And it's been an amazing thing to merge two organisations that carry over 130 years' history cumulatively between them. And finally, I would love, but in no part least, to introduce Terry Wu, who is a Melbourne-based philanthropist currently serving on organisational boards including the National Association for the Visual Arts, Heidi Museum of Modern Art and the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. And I think Terry brings a really great and unique perspective because when I met you I was at Gertrude Contemporary and it's really over the past 10 years as the sector has gained in capacity that you've grown in your kind of capacity and ambition as a philanthropist and advocate in this sector. But I think the first question really goes to Shannon. And it would be great to understand, everyone's like, thank goodness it's not me. Um, and look, ask questions or interrupt, there'll be time for that at the end. Um, but Shannon, can you just talk to us a little bit about why all conference and what the goals and aims of all conference are and what it's aiming to achieve? Why this time? Sure, sure. Test, test. Um, I think it's. I mean, I think it's a good form to be unpacking um, all conference and its aims because it started in a sense about conversation and about trying to foster more of it, more of it amongst the micro and small organisations, the artist-run organisations. And I think out of that maybe impulse. And I guess you talked a little bit about the um, reallocation of funding that happened, which I think put a lot of organisations under under pressure, also under a pressure of morale, uh, low morale. Um, and we realised just uh, then, at least I did, how little we talked with each other, how little bridges had been built that would allow conversations to happen more easily. Um, and I think, so out of, and, and from my experience in Queensland, I think I can't necessarily divorce myself from that experience of being in a sector that, or in, a, in, a, in an ecology in that circumstance in Brisbane, where there was a, a whole lot of fluctuation between organisations emerging, disappearing, merging and disappearing, a scene kind of uh, existing and then almost evaporating completely from memory. And I think for me, some of that uh, came from this lack of conversation, sustained conversation over, over many years. And I think once I'd moved to Melbourne, where you had a, a wealth of organisations who were existing together, um, that uh, there was a need for, for more of it. And I think that was accentuated by the funding crisis that happened. And so I think for, for, for me, that meant that I was to raise a conversation. Uh, with a group of other organisations and see where it would go. And I think all conference sort of came out of that impulse, starting conversations with a group of spaces that seemed to share a number of a uh, similar aims around longevity, um, artist-centred practice, um, and, uh, and, and certain, certain sort of other programming aims that seemed to be in sympathy. So, and, and I think, you know, the language we sort of came to, I, I figure I should sort of read in a way, because it sort of encompasses some of the main outset aims for the organisation that will no doubt change as the, um, uh, the network grows a little bit. So, All Conference is a national organising network comprising of, of, of 15 artist-led experimental and cross-disciplinary arts organisations. We represent a crucial stratum of the Australian arts ecology. Um, all conference members present diverse and innovative artistic programs which support the practices of living Australian artists. They connect these practices to diverse audiences via a passionate localism um, coupled with significant national and, inter and international peer-to-peer -peer networks. The aims as we set them forth at the beginning of our, our conversation were, were around uh, articulating the current value and future potential of Australia's small-scale artist-led and experimental sector, initiating research, publications, conferences, creative projects, providing a platform for knowledge sharing, advocating for increased funding from government and philanthropic sources, uh, strengthen nationwide audiences and foster international recognition. I know we share some of these with our contemporary arts space um, uh, members. Uh, strengthen nation, um, and maintain comprehensive national metrics and collate news and activities from its members and foster discussion around issues of social, sociocultural urgency. Um, so in a way, that lays a number of points in terms of both the, the official blurb, but also some of the impulses that, that started this conversation. I think there's a lot of good things, and Charlotte, I'd like to go to you, because when you hear Shannon describing and using that nomenclature and that vocabulary, the vernacular that his you know, activating to speak about a very kind of generative and responsive context for thinking about a kind of integrated approach, a very agile approach in many ways. 20 years ago, when you began as a director in these organisations, what is the sector now and then? Is there such a thing as an ecology? And and what do you, what role do you... I think don't like being the old person in the room. <laughs> I'm equally. <laughs> but I can handle it for a moment. Um... When Shannon was speaking, I was thinking, because when I first was working at Gertrude Street particularly, it was an extremely lean financial time in the world, but, you know, even more so in the art world. And um, it was really just out of need that we 
started working quite closely together and there was a lot of artist-run spaces that had come up during that time um, in the early mid-90s, so I was probably lucky to kind of come at the time of that growth. But it just actually was quite an organic process. But, you know, the community was smaller, the world was smaller, probably like the time in which we were doing things was slower, you know, so those conversations were probably easier to have. Um, I'm interested in what mechanisms you actually use to have that conversation because I know for me now often that's a text <laughs> or an, a quick email, you know, and I still, like, I totally rely on other people all the time and I see um, what we do in one organisation as being totally codependent on many of the other organisations, you know, particularly in Melbourne but increasingly nationally and then, you know, we can have close colleagues in other countries as well but... You know, I'm interested, since you've started something new, like, is there a particular mechanism for sharing information that's working so far? Well, I think one of the things we come to understand is that no matter how much you think you can use, um, uh, say, uh, new available tools, new kind of uh, project uh, management sort of tools, actually it's face-to-face -face that's really... And I think that's one of the things I noticed, not only by visiting the... Um, uh, the um, contemporary art space of meeting this morning and also having our own face-to-face -face meeting for the first time, just how important that face-to-face -face communication, dialogue, discussion uh, is and how unsatisfactory email and Skype can be. We, we do structure our meetings because we're national and because we don't have big budgets to send people quickly around the place. Um, we do often rely on those systems, email, um, Google Drive, all these kind of systems that interplay to share data, share content, um, inform each other of programs. But I think one of the things we learn, both in terms of this network and in terms of collaborating with you know, friends in other countries, peer-to-peer, -peer, that face-to-face -face doesn't replace it. I do. It just reminded me, actually, like when I first was um, acting director at Gertrude Street and I was pretty much a novice in most ways, um, Rose Lang, who had been director who was going on leave, she said, you know, if you just don't know something, just ask someone. And that's kind of what I've always done and I hope, you know, that I do help other people reciprocal in that way too. So I think that's like a big part of the community here. You know, it's been something probably pretty precious. And perhaps when there was a bit of a peak in commercial activity and this whole fundraising drive that we know was really has become much more um, important part of the activities of lots of institutions, I think that did split people up a bit and it was really important and perhaps it was the adversity of um, especially the federal government's particular attitude a few years ago that in a way helped people to come back together and think, you know, look, we really need each other because there's other forces that, you know, will work against us. I think something that was interesting for the KO organisations, and I would just mention that all of the KO organisations are here this evening because we hold two meetings a year in two different cities um, twice a year, so everyone is here amongst you, and also all the all-conference directors, as you mentioned, and, and it is personal, and the, nothing beats the interpersonal, and the capacity to say something to someone and ask a question or communicate your vulnerability, communicate where it's difficult and where you're exposed at a certain point in time, because these are relationships. You know, we're still working with the ideas of living artists being formed in real time, by and large. And so there is a certain amount of responsibility and ethics embedded in that, and how can you share capacity? And I suppose it would be good to hear from Nick and from Megan. And, and Nick, you're also someone who's, you know, the first time I saw your work was at Gertrude Contemporary, but you've moved in and out of the KO sector over the years. And in recent years, Megan, you've also been coming through those organisations. And it'd be great to hear from you about do things like KO and all conference legitimately have a role for you? And what is that role? And what is it that you require? I mean, I think, like, definitely, like, I think, like, we wouldn't have a practice without that kind of support. And it's actually interesting to think about how I think what could also happen in terms of a conversation is a bigger conversation between the artists and the people that are out there in the, in, in the kind of battlefield fighting to protect these spaces and the funding because it's I think as artists would become preoccupied with what we're doing in terms of our work and then I think that like what happened through the Brandis thing is it actually made us all aware that we need to stick together and, and, and kind of um, fight um, for this together and I think what also happened it, within that it, it sort of happened at a really nice moment where um, 
people started realizing that not only do we need to look after ourselves, but we needed also to, to help provide a, a space for other voices that perhaps hadn't been heard. And I, I, I think that, you know, in a way, it was almost a serendipitous situation. And I think that now um, there is a kind of bigger conversation starting to happen and also a kind of re-looking at what's, what's possible within these spaces in terms of conversation. One more quick thing is that I, I think that one thing that I find is that, that we, it's such an accelerated um, kind of uh, industry or, or kind of occupation that we don't slow down enough to be able to have conversations and that um, I, I find that we, we, we become so busy in, tr in trying to do what we do because it is kind of very much um, a kind of laborious process that that there isn't enough time to kind of enter into these conversations with one another. So, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know how to put, put the handbrake on the world, but I think that, like, if we could set up situations where we, we try to slow down, then then there is more space for, for discussion and actually kind of solidifying a kind of some real change. Yeah. I don't want to treat it lightly, but Marco Fusanato called me recently... And he said, I think your organisation's moving too quickly. You should curate shows where you tell the artists they only get three emails and you only get three emails. And if everything can't be solved in those three emails, then you can't do the show. <laughs> that's a radical position. <laughs> and I think it's an interesting point because, you know, where we are operating in an environment of metrics and qualitative and quantitative data and output against sustainability goals, what space is there? You raise the question for critical discourse to be embedded and supported against reflecting on the actual work we're presenting. Mm. And in a sense, are these organisations becoming too institutionalised that something gets lost in terms of the capacity for risk or, or that reflection? And I think that's... I mean, maybe if... Patrice, do you have any thoughts on that, just transitioning Westspace through? Well, I was just thinking about that particularly, like, Westspace um, as an organisation has an RE history and it has a programming that's about 50% open call and 50% um, curatorial invitation at the moment. But we end up, we've got four spaces and we've been doing about eight rounds of shows a year. So it's the kind of the stats, it's great about the number of artists we're working with. But um, next year we're looking at slowing the, pro we have to move as well. So we've got some internal organisational challenges and we're three staff. So we're looking at slowing down the program so we can work closer with artists and also like strategically think about what what the mechanisms that we have internally in place, such as this open call, like we don't want to lose what that is about access and transparency and um, platform, like being able, um, but um, we would like to revisit, review through consultation with artists um, what that mechanism looks like and that's something that can be a bit more productive and um, uh, that considers about timeframes and finding funding and having a closer kind of curatorial artist relationship. But it's, it has meant kind of we've had to make some really tough decisions for next year in terms of slowing the program down, like what, what might, the number of artists we might work with for a little while, just in terms of so we can actually establish something that is long-term viable and has a really more meaningful relationship between the organisation and the artists that we work with. I think something that's interesting is that KO, because we meet twice a year and we have done so for 25 years nearly, that we can track changes in the sector. And there was this moment around 2011 where you saw that these organisations were producing kind of 30, 40 projects a year, that they were supporting a huge amount of the development of new works through production and presentation, residencies, touring. And then in about 2014, there was this kind of sharp turn where people began pulling back. And I suppose for artists, you know, does that diminish the number of opportunities or did, does that make these spaces still accessible? And I suppose, Megan, with someone who's really been working over the past 10 years and gaining much more momentum... How do you feel you relate to this ecology? Well, I think that slowing down is certainly a good move um, if we want to have better conversations and more time to, um, you know, articulate what it is we're trying to say. I mean, um, in terms of resources, though, I think it's, um, from my perspective and being in proper now and being in the position that we're in, you know, resources come and go and, you know, regardless, we're, we're committed to um, the things that we want to say and our political reality, our social and political reality. So I think that it's um, really great if things slow down and I think that that's something that a lot of um, organisations feel a great pressure, you know, to produce and to keep people engaged and to keep these audience numbers because, you know, that's what organisations are under pressure for, to, you know, to keep achieving these KPIs, to get the funding, to support, you know, but it's like 
we should be deciding and thinking about what is it? Is it is it quality over quantity, or what what is important? Is it the conversations that we're having, or or the you know ephemera and objects, or you know? Um, so, but you know, in terms of these organisations legitimising my practice, I've really really enjoyed it, um, particularly over the last five years, because I found that. Um, you know, the small to medium organisations are willing to take risks and actually have those conversations um, in the first place. And larger institutions may then engage later, but um, that certainly made uh, me as an artist feel like um, what I have to say is, you know is being heard, yeah. I think there's something interesting in these spaces, which is that it's this idea 10 or 15, 20 years ago that there was a linear career trajectory. Mm. You went through the artist-run spaces, you went into the KO orgs, you went into a survey show at a larger Kunsthalle, you ha were included in Primavera at the MCA, you went into a Biennale, you had a museum show, and you kept going that way. But it doesn't work like that. That's bullshit. You know, the dead end in Australia is really mid-career because opportunities, in a sense, dry up. And, you know, how do we actually build audiences and capacity for Australian artists early enough outside of the local context. So there's something very important about building a local context and a strength of community and collaboration. But how do we work, particularly, and I think this is a good question for you, Makala, working in 4A in the Asia century where slowing down is not an option. How do we advocate and build capacity for artists outside of these contexts in our communities? I think this is um, it's a long-standing question. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of like the weaponization of data. You know, the World Economic Forum says that we're in the fourth industrial age. We've had um, steam, steel, service, and data. Every major company, you know, the big five companies, Apple, whatever, Apple, Microsoft. Google, they may masquerade as something else, but it's data. What we're being asked to um, return to or, or give a report on is this data, but we need to be clever about what we're actually collecting because that can be used against us. And I think the way that people have approached an engagement with our region, um, the Asia-Pacific, has been in a sort of a numbers game and it's not really been the correct way to approach things. These things are about relationships. They're about one-to-one. -one. Um, they're about spending time understanding more than just the art scene but the context and the community of which things emerge from. And that takes time. It takes really slow, really um, personal um, engagement that... I feel that we need to have a stake in other communities for them, for even to begin to expect them to become our audiences. So it's a, a really complex question for us that goes beyond this kind of data-driven way that we are kind of being pushed to think in. And I think our biggest and our, our biggest role to protect artists and our relationships with artists and how you can produce is through protecting that relationship, um, and that should not affect the artists and how they produce. And I think that's our biggest challenge as um, small orgs is keeping that data-driven idea away from how we work. It's, really, it's, a, it's a really interesting one because that idea of like ticking boxes and meeting, you know, again, you know, KPIs. You know, KPIs, who, who had heard of a KPI in the KO all-conference sector back in 1999? And I suppose, you know, what is also the role? I mean, I think some of the most exciting things over the past 15 to 20 years has been to see how Australian arts organisations have developed in parallel with the professionalisation of the context across the region. And we've seen, like you know, a broad plethora of not-for-profit, independent and artist-led initiatives across Asia really take strong leadership roles from Parasite, you know, through to places like Art Sanjay, across down through Indonesia, Singapore. We've seen changes and transitions and some of the most exciting work in terms of advocacy for Australian artists working abroad hasn't been that top-down role, but it's been, a, you know, it's been from the roots up. And, you know, maybe just quickly that might be a question in terms of just going back to All Conference. How is All Conference thinking about kind of international advocacy and engagement and building those relationships when you don't necessarily have the resources. Then I might go across to Terry. Well, I would say that some of the stuff um, that... And again, I'll speak from my experience and um, in terms of uh, an organisation... As my life in an organisation both here in Melbourne and, and in Brisbane as well, um, was that these um, these uh, relationships were, were all important, both to me understanding why it was uh, a serious thing to work in a, a micro-organisation. Uh, a lot of it was built through my experience with other organisations overseas, and, and that started with our first invitation to come, and I mentioned this this morning at the meeting, was to come to NextWave in our very early days as Box Copy, as a group, as a collaborative group, to come and work with a whole lot of organisations that 
were operating in Melbourne and then in the subsequent next wave from overseas, especially some of those organisations you mentioned, working alongside them um, from Indonesia. And, they, and those relationships continued. Those relationships established peer to, uh, again, our models are often artist to artist relationships. And out of those kind of creative, uh, improvisational, nimble relationships, you can yield projects of a scale that you would never imagine you'd be able to do from a no-budget organisation. Um, and that's kind of what happened through... But but it was also one of the things I remember mentioning in terms of why, how these things can happen is through an interrelationship with large organisations, Next Wave, AsiaLink, etc. These kind of intergeared relationships with larger organisations meant that we could use our talents as artists and artist art workers to broker these really interesting kind of co-collaborative, um, uh, really big uh, scale um, creative projects out of seemingly nothing at all. So, and I think that often, I think many of our members of all conference would, would relate to some of that experience. We were just in, in Hobart for the, Ho the Hobart Biennial and that was a hugely, that was another model of this kind of uh, people were there working for nothing, you know, donating a lot of their time with the support of, the, of Liam and Grace uh, to kind of bring things together, but this hugely collaborative um, volunteer efforts yielding these amazingly creative situations. And I think that, that goes in terms of a method of working, both locally and, in, and internationally. With a kind of sleeves-up agenda and a punching above your weight, getting on with business, making things happen from the grassroots up, Terry... You know, what is the role and relationship of private giving and philanthropy in this context? I think in this context for myself, really, what I would like to do is reframe the conversation, really. I think uh, we're talking about KPI, and I think KPI is important, and experimentation, the ability to experiment, to fail, should be a KPI. I work within the system. I think activism within the system is very important. I want to find out how the system actually works and works it to the uh, advantage of the whole organism. I think at the end of the day, I'm, I'm interested because my father's an artist, it's been my blood. And I think culture is interesting to bring everyone up. So the, uh, to me, the end point is to increase the cultural awareness of the society. And all of us have a role to fulfill in that. And in that, I think philanthropy fulfills a very good purpose because it serves to be able to be agile, to be nimble, to be independent. But I want to reframe philanthropy as not just giving, it's actually receiving. I'm actually looking at the opposite. By giving, you actually receive something in return. It's actually putting a value, whether that's a dollar value, cultural value, in the outcome, including the ability to experiment and fail, as the gift of, of, of giving, if you like. So, so it's really putting a sense of investment into philanthropy. Like, when I first started getting involved in Heidi, I always thought philanthropy is asking the top of the pyramid, wealthy people, to give money. There are only so many people, and they're sick and tired of being asked. I don't want to ask. I want them to want to give money because they're getting something in return they can't refuse. That model is used everywhere in the world. I look at philanthropists in America, in Europe. They want to give. They're dying to give. Why can't we have that in Australia? There's no reason why we can't. So I'm trying to flip it upside down, if you like. I think that idea of reciprocity built into the process of philanthropy and private giving, that idea of collaboration, and something we speak about a little bit at KO and certainly at Artspace, is how the idea of our funders has shifted from the idea of funding being something that the sector is entitled to, to the idea that our funders are, in a sense, philanthropists, or have to be that the relationship with philanthropists or pat patrons like yourself is more experimental or radical or lateral than the way that we think about philanthropy as it comes from funding entities. And you had a tough time with your funding entities in the past 18 months with the devolution of two organisations who both lost their federal funding and one lost their federal funding. No. Bo both lost their federal, both lost one lost their, their federal state. funding. So with EFE and with CAXA. And you've had to totally reinvent the wheel. And how have you actually been able to do that with ACE Open in this context and maintain the kind of principles and values of those organisations but create something unique? Yeah, I think it's, um, it was, you know, obviously a really challenging year last year for both CAXA and EFE and um, a lot of unknowns. Um, as Alexi said, both organisations, I'd come into the role at CAXA as executive director and four months after there we um, were told that our funding had been cut and that the EVEs had been federally and um, 
and you know in you know in no certain terms we were essentially told that we needed to amalgamate and this had been a discussion that had been happening between the two organizations for 20 years so i think what's um and i'm really grateful for being on this panel because i think often i used to live in sydney and i worked in sydney for a long time and um you know it's interesting now being back in adelaide um listening to the bigger cities talk about um their 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 organizations their ecologies because one of the problems with the amalgamation of cancer and evil potential problems was that we are now it. Like ACE is the only independent contemporary arts organisation in South Australia. The, there's not a regional, a, a hugely sort of regional gallery network like there is in Sydney. There's not as much of a diversity of um, institutions. So um, there's the Samstag Museum and the Art Gallery, but they often they um, operate in a different remit, and there's a they have a different remit, and there's a really strong Ari scene. So for us, it's a huge responsibility um, as an organisation and a very young organisation to um, create opportunities for South Australian artists, but also contextualise their practice and look at what's happening nationally and internationally and also have that, you know, come to Adelaide, be exhibited in Adelaide because that's of benefit to not only artists but audiences. So, um, you know, we're still very much working through um, the machinations of our organisation and finding our feet in stability and it's a really um, exciting opportunity. It's not every day you get to start an organisation from scratch and we've been able to, I take on board what everyone's saying about slowing down because one of the things with um, CAXA and EFA, they were doing so much for, with very little resourcing and having the opportunity to start fresh where there's not as many, there's different expectations, I should say, from our funding bodies. We've been able to regroup and say, what is sustainable? What do we want to do? How can we do um, projects better, maybe, and maybe slow, slow down a little? Um, because that's, as we're all saying, the conversation is what's key. Um, so we really need to work strategically to support the South Australian arts sector and artists but also um, sort of bridge that gap between what's happening nationally and locally? I mean, these are big questions in terms of how do you... You know, you are essentially the oldest organisation in KO, which is what you inherited with the archives of those organisations and the newest entity in KO, in a sense. And so balancing those remits of the past. And I don't think these organisations always got it right either. And, you know, how do we talk about things like ensuring cultural and linguistic diversity, equity and inclusion in our programs? And do we think that these organisations do enough in ensuring that we let go of the reins to let a diversity of voices um, lead the program as well? You know, that's, that's a question I just would probably throw to a number of you. I don't know if Charlotte would like to pick I up. I think um, I was thinking about it before, like how, you know, when you open a book and it has the disclaimer from the publisher... Like, I would like the gallery to be like that so that you, you present things that you often... You have a certain kind of relationship to or you invest in it and you support it and you want to make it happen. But it doesn't have to always be that one, you know, something that's so close to you directly. I think the idea of creating a platform that allows for different voices to speak and for different audiences to um, interact with, with who's speaking is probably the key thing that's most important and perhaps even though we're so mega connected in our world now maybe we miss another type of connection more and galleries probably do have a role to play in that you know perhaps that they didn't need to play before yeah so I think I think that's an interesting thing but how to um I mean I know from my perspective of being in a big university institution where cultural sensitivity and consideration are very high on the agenda and they should be, that that can also then lead very quickly to self-censorship about what you feel is okay to show or not because of those sensitivities. So creating an environment maybe where you do have your disclaimer but you also allow that things can be said because you don't want to we don't want to become people that self-censor. 
What's interesting, I think, in these organisations and something that Artspace thought about a lot was that obscenity and indecency laws in Australia are now more deliberately opaque than they were in the 1970s. And all of the KO organisations have written into their funding agreements that if anyone goes to the police and complains that they've seen obscene or indecent material, we certainly do according to our Create New South Wales contract, is that if someone goes to the police and complains that what they've seen offends them, then our our funding immediately goes on suspension. So how do we pay rent? How do we pay salaries? So you do end up in this climate of self-censorship rather than actual legitimate risk. And that's something that doesn't really get spoken about publicly. I think the thing to to come back to, um, you know, having organisations like Chaos and your one to maybe to have that joint voice when those situations come is going to be one of the key things. So even part of the universities have their own network too. And maybe all of us, those joint voices give us a certain power that sometimes harder to have individually and I used to think that I mean I think this is probably something we're going to get to as well but the role of larger institutions and state institutions particularly you would think that they would have that advocacy voice for the sector but because they are in effect arms of government or their relationship to government's much closer I think they actually have less ability to do that than probably I'd quite understood. I think what was interesting in the KO circumstance and was that when we did the um, Day of Action last year and we actually found that five of the 14 KO organisations were defunded, we immediately worked with the Museum of Contemporary Art with Lizanne to corral the statement that came from the sector with 45 signatures from entities across Australia, which was unprecedented support from the sector from that level. But it was interesting to see which state galleries omitted to sign (laughs) due to their own political complicities. And there was only two, but it was interesting which two they were. I won't say which ones they were until later when someone buys me a drink. (laughs) I'm prone to indiscretion after white wine. (laughs) If I can just add anything, it's like if we look at nature and we look at healthy ecologies, what you see is symbiotic relationships um, where both organisms or, you know, um, parts are um, reciprocating and receiving and giving, you know, something healthy that then feeds a larger system. Um, one project that I found has been was, like, so life-changing and so incredible was um, a project called Time, Place, Space, Nomad with um, performance space where all these artists, we all went on the road for three weeks and we really had those conversations. We really actually didn't even really do art. I mean, there were art projects and obviously performances and things and offerings, but that was a really incredible program that didn't um, have an outcome in a gallery um, but has solidified relationships with artists. We've become friends you know, maintain those friendships and continue to have conversations that, you know, that was really, really remarkable. I'd never done anything like that before. I think, you know, the real thing in in this sector is the relationships that you build through time. And it is only through the relationships through time that you can deliver the things that are being delivered. Um, but I think, you know, Patrice, did you have something you wanted to... I thought, no. One or two. I wanted to... I guess I was... It's hard to take away from, I guess, the the fact that we should talk more about art, right? We should talk in these conversations. But I guess um, uh, to to get to go back to some of the questions of um, advocacy, especially around the notion of defunding organisations, as related to the ongoing circumstances for for artists and for volunteer organisations that sustain a whole lot of. Um, uh, a big chunk of the art scene um, and and take a lot of the brunt of graduating artists, even when art, we're talking a lot about slowing down organisations, but there is a, there is a, a kind of a systematic um, uh, generation of new artists into the scene and someone's going to bear the brunt of, of slowing down at certain organisations. It means maybe new organisations will open up. I suspect those new organisations will be voluntary and I suspect they'll be run by artists. And as we talk about philanthropic donations, there's someone always pops up in a forum like this and says artists are the biggest donors in the, in the sector. And I think the OSCO report, although we haven't done our public program unpacking the, the, the new OSCO report yet, but subsequent reports from NAVA and others will, will continually put artists below the poverty line. Um, and when talking about artists, if you kind of take ourselves out of the talking ourselves in an art sector context and put ourselves into the general workforce and talk about labour politics more generally, you can see there's a real problem. You can see there's a problem with artists and their pay levels right across the board. 
Um, and, and that probably is an undercurrent of this that need, needed to be kind of floated out there, as I guess there's a lot of people who are supposed to be, I think it was probably brought attention to, because we're supposed to be putting superannuation aside from our artist fees. And that for me is kind of a funny thing, but it shouldn't be funny. <laughs> but it does, as I approach 37 years old, makes me think about the, the, the speculation that I've made on my career, the insecurity that a lot of my peers feel, um, and, and it perhaps has an endpoint. It'll have a burnout endpoint, it'll have a closure endpoint, or a perpetuating problem. It's just a good thing to undercurrent. Oh, well, now, when, so when you get paid an artist fee, you, really you're supposed to take some of that out and voluntarily put it into your super, right? So, so that you have some Organisations are meant thing. to pay super on top of artist fees. So yeah. you're meant to be... It's about artists being registered for super and making sure because organisations will put it into a fund of our choice unless you have a nominated fund. And I think it's actually because, you know, $9,600 a year is the average income of an artist in Australia, according to NAVA. Um, did you want to add something, Terry? No, no, I agree with what you're saying completely, mm. really. Think... You're on the board of NAVA. Yeah, I sit on the board of NAVA, and that has taught me a lot, actually. <laughs> and, and I agree with you. Uh, being an artist is a profession. My father's an artist, as I said. So I think there should be equity in how people are remunerated. And a part of that relates to whether the purpose of the work is actually appreciated in general in the community. And there has to be leadership both at a federal level as well as from activists to be able to enshrine that. So you have superannuation, you have you know, health check and so forth. So that's a very important part of really changing the paradigm of this poverty mentality to that you're producing great work. You deserve to be remunerated and you should ask for it should also have the securities that come with the longevity of a practice. I'm just going to flag that there is going to be time for questions in a few moments if you have them, but yes. I mean, artists don't have a wage. You know, we, we're lucky, like, and the institutions that I've worked with have given an artist fee, which is generous, but artists, don't, they don't, we don't have wages. Like, some of us are lucky to sell work. Sometimes that lasts a long time. Sometimes that lasts a couple of years and it disappears. Most artists have other jobs. We, I think the myth of artists having a wage it's I remember you telling me about a museum show you were doing in the United States a yeah. while ago where they didn't pay any kind of fee at all and that idea I think yeah. of artists being invited to the dinner but being expected to pay and bring the food yeah. and that happens in a lot of bigger organisations yeah. I think these organisations no. feel yeah. a huge amount of accountability mm. and artists we, I mean often feel that if you if you bark then you, 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 you they'll yes. go somewhere else so it's yeah. like Especially as a younger artist, you feel that if you keep going long enough, eventually you will get that. Um, it'll, it'll pay off, but it's this it's this carrot that just keeps getting further for a lot of people. So, um, yeah. One other thing around that, I think it's also like one thing I noticed. I think Melbourne's really healthy in terms of the spaces that we have, like with with bus and West space. But it's harder for for younger artists now to because of the economic situation and the real estate situation that we have. It's harder for those for younger people to go out and do something. And I think that maybe, like, spaces, like, that that have sort of survived that and have become established could also be become, like, mentors for artists coming out of art schools and stuff. And Because I have students uh, where I teach at the University of Melbourne that are wanting to do this, but they just say that it's, it's, it's really hard. I mean, it's never easy, but how do we kind of help keep that keep going just so that it's not just a case of spaces like bus and west space that have that are doing such a great job and becoming in a sense more professionalized but also how do we how do we keep bringing new um spaces or new people with different ideas about how to do these things in in into the, into I th the ecology I think that's kind of our role as i think um even organizations across all the spectrum going up our role is to make this easier for artists our role is to band together, do things together to advocate for this kind of small change but can roll and get into larger and larger and more considerable change but also about building career pathways for the next generation that are coming through whether they're art practitioners and we're talking today about new spaces pop up and have to relearn everything um, whether there is a kind of legacy that gets passed on between and um, along orgs, not in sort of necessarily always in the same kind of direction but also that we can help artists figure out what that next stage is and be alongside for the ride. It's not something... We don't just work with you for a show. We're in it for the long haul. I think that kind of working um, is better together, kind of what we're talking about. Is there any questions from anyone out here? John. Yes. 
Uh, hi guys, so I'm just really, really happy that uh, uh, quite a few remarks really made me extremely uh, happy about the fact that, first of all, uh, there's this issue about um, all the museums and, and that particular tier of, of um, uh, organizations, which is basically based on, at this stage, data, uh, basically based on distraction and popularist sort of like popularity. And... Um, now, th those sort of institutions um, almost don't relate, in a sense, to, to the chaos sort of organization anymore. I'm just very, very happy to hear that you guys are actually accepting um, not just the younger artists in terms of their progression as a career path, which you said, you know, was actually bullshit now that there's this progression from you know, uh, the normal le lower level organizations up to a museum a survey and then, you know, go up the, the ladder sort of thing. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, what I like to see is actually artists seeing that that's the case and not necessarily accepting that the museums are the be all and end all mm. of, of, of uh, you know, art artistic and cultural production. I mean, I really think that the artists themselves really have to be educated in a way that the role of, of their work is actually cultural production. It's not actually uh, a career, uh, which is now all based on, you know, uh, distraction and popularism that, that the museums have. And I, and I think that, that that was a very, very wonderful thing that you guys were saying. That, and I think that message has to be given out to, to artists as well, is that they... Mm. You, you are actually en engaging on a, a lot of different levels of their vocation rather than, you know, uh, them seeing as a step. I think something that's important in Australia is we have a population of 26 million people, which is the population of Karachi or, you know, New York State on a continent the size of North America. And we have limited numbers of opportunities for artists to show at all stages of their career to produce and show new work. So how do we support you know, through an, a national ecology and through advocacy, places in which artists at all stages of their career can test their work outside of a kind of notion of a linear trajectory. And I think that's probably one. I mean, I know, Patrice, you know, with West Bay showing more senior artists in your program and more established artists alongside emerging. Yeah, that's, yeah I was going to say, uh, the narrative you're picking up on is one that's been quite, since I've been at West Bay, so we work with, I talk about emerging and underrepresented artists, so... Um, when we work with emerging artists, particularly trying to unteach that narrative about a trajectory from this ecology ladder, um, because I think it really affects your way you're thinking about the opportunity at hand and the kind of risk of what you're doing with this um, an exhibition making and that at that moment. So we really try to, um, yeah, I think it's an important sort of unlearning. And we, when I do talks at um, art schools with third or fourth years, it's really something we talk about, about um, really taking control of your own practice and that, you know, you're not working just in that, in, in these types of spaces, but you can make opportunity for yourself and think about what you want to get out of your practice or what you want to try out. Um, uh, in terms of, so, what was the, it was, what was the question again? Oh, sorry, I got stuck on that one. You answered it anyway. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, okay, cool, all right. Yeah, I, was, oh, I was just going to say, you know, again, being in Adelaide where the, the State Gallery there is, you know, incredibly successful and, um, you know, is sort of has really, Nick Mitsovich has really turned that around, has been really interesting for, you know, an independent organisation like ACE and Caxa and EVE because, you know, I really, really fiercely maintain that we must stay independent, we must be that independent voice in South Australia, for South Australia and more broadly. And articulating that can be, I guess, a challenge. But I think the idea that, um, you know, I think what you're saying is right about sort of populism. We are, we are the engine room of, you know, as well as the ARIES as well, and, and organisations are involved in, in all conference and care. We are the, the engine rooms of um, a lot of cultural production. And, and I honestly just to my absolute core, believe in that independence and I think we all do. It's so crucial to any city or any state or any place and, um, yeah, it poses interesting challenges um, when you were saying before about data and everything's about audience numbers now and, and KPIs and outcomes and, and sometimes some of these things are the, the outcomes or the... Um, 
the sort of measures by which care organisations, you know, the, their metrics are, you know, they're not always easy. They're not qualitative necessarily. They're not quantitative. And that's, I think, a challenge that many of the small to medium organisations have in articulating to government and, and fundraisers and philanthropists. Distraction, you know, and popularism. There's the issue that all these large organisations are always growth-based irregardless of any, at any cost. It's growth-based. And the issue that I'd like to ask is uh, from Michaela is, is what was your actual uh, sort of experience of actually retaining a particular size for 4A uh, to remain nimble, in a sense? It's a trick question, John. Um, <laughs> as the founder of 4A... Um, we just made it. We made a decision this year that we we want to stay our size, and because we're in a in a bigger in a big escape, Sydney is um, got lots of small to medium spaces, and being small for us suits the way in which we want to work and enables us to retain the kind of independence that um, Liz is talking about. And I think our most of our impact comes from the nimbleness and the scrappiness of being small. So I think. It actually enables us to work and play better with the big guns because we're not seen as um, threatening. So I think there is a real importance um, that we don't do away with small and don't always try and expand, don't always try and be big. And everyone's talking about capital development at the moment. But if you don't, then suddenly your whole way that you're planning a business shifts. And I think that's a really important way to think about things. I mean, I have to say, and we'll go to you, Luli, in a second, is that I love that organisations like Contemporary Art Tasmania through to the National Centre for Contemporary Art in the Northern Territory, which has been through a shit time, <laughs> through to things like Ace Open, through Pika in Perth. You know, between 2012 and 2014, over 600 new commissions created in the KO organisation shows that these organisations are investing in the development of new work and not just tried and tested ideas. And if you maintain a certain agility within your infrastructure, you can hopefully add more investment and oomph back in supporting risky works. Yeah, Luli. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask what KOs and all conference, um, what's the feeling amongst your members around the... I think earlier than five years ago, um, from what I can tell in the record, a lot of the middle contemporary art spaces, uh, in my opinion, failed First Nations artists, particularly women and non-binary artists, and other non-European artists. And I wanted to know, particularly when an institution across the road is complicit in the abuse of asylum seekers and torture, um, and they are unaccountable, in my opinion, to anyone in this city, whatever your background, um, how, you know, when you're much closer to community, because you're part of community, um, and you're not having lunch at Cumulus every day, um, what, what the, like, I guess, yeah, I just want to see, like, what, what's, your, what's your leadership on this? Um, and it's not an issue, and it's not, like, KPIs, and I don't want to hear about affirmative action, because this is actually the core of this continent. Thank you. I think, I'm just going to say quickly, from my own perspective, and someone else may want to pick it up in all conference, but from... KO, I, I mean, in the past, you know, I think when you look at the way that practice has shifted in terms of social accountability and the ethics of the things that artists speak about in terms of the equitable distribution of resources and the representation and debunking of who has power and who speaks for how and for whom, you know, if you actually legitimately want to work in these spaces and be accountable to living practices that deal with the issues of our times, then you have to be ethical. So you have to be personally accountable. So, yeah, these organisations got it wrong at various times in their history and at various times continue to not get it as right as we could but I think that there is a sense that if you are going to actually be accountable to practice and true to showing this work you can't write a catalogue essay saying that I believe in the decentralisation of power and giving it back to artists of all kind of refrains then if you're not actually fucking walking the walk then don't talk the talk because it means nothing and I think you know our organisations take that seriously at a personal level and I think um, so when I think about um, reorientating our spaces, or at least, and again, I'll talk for myself, I won't necessarily speak for others, but I'll talk about where I think this converges with all conference. It relates, I guess, for me to, f to realising how much we were part of a, a larger system that, um, and I guess this is a larger part for, for spaces like Boss Projects, part of a, um, a post-university or a university um, extension, uh, uh, which um, was in some senses about uh, a sort of conventional career-building pathway um, that locked us into a certain amount of expectation of a certain kind of artist who would go to university, speculate on their career success by paying for shows at artist-run spaces. And what that 
if if we remain passive on these issues, we continue to perpetrate those kind of um, those kind of lineages of of who we're working with. Um, and for um, our organisations, that was part of what we prioritised as part of this discussion as a group. What does it mean to 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 admit these um, problems? The the um, uh, often the Eurocentric nature of the programs, the fact that our programs were replicating things from um, uh, countries like Canada, but without their uh, without their active First Nations engagement. What, why, why was that happening? And what were these organisations going to do or are they doing to kind of reverse those passive um, failures in their programs? I, yeah. I think one thing you mentioned before, Terry, is you can't affect, affect efficient change unless you're within the systems that create the structures and authority that determine where resources are allocated. And certainly today at the KO meeting, we're hearing that a lot of organisations are having First Nations representatives on their boards for the first time. Um, we did a meeting in April this year, and it's not about KPIs, but we did a review of how we look at governance. And a lot of these organisations in the KO network are actually looking at things like constitutional reform at IMA to enshrine representation of First Nations people within the decision-making processes that determine where resources are allocated. So it's not just about numbers in programs, but about who's actually participating in the leadership that shapes and determines what is within these programs and how they are accountable. And that's that's quite a big shift. So we've got a board member, Nava, who is of Indigenous descent as well, too, which is amazing. I've got a question for the Chaos organisation. You're saying we have a very small audience because we've got a relatively small population. How can we increase the audience? What are the Chaos organisations and organisation universities and museums? What can we do to increase the audience to the world rather than our population? Do we have a small audience? I don't think we do have a small audience. I will qualify by saying I think um, as a percentage of population who are interested in culture in Australia, I suppose could be increased. But um, in terms of audience, I travel internationally for biennales and art fairs and, and um, I would like to see more people internationally to be interested in what we're doing here. So we don't, in that non-linear trajectory of artists, you don't necessarily need to go from RE to museum to international. Why can't you? I was at the Delfino Foundation for their, for their annual uh, dinner. So there was an artist there who's relatively young from South Korea. Not only she was she living at Delfino, she was showing at the Tate. So they kind of leapfrog this in a non-linear fashion to the world. That's really what I'm talking about. At the beginning of today, I gave a crazy number, which I said between 2012 and 2014, that works created by KO organisations have been seen by 3.9 million people, which is a real number, because when we're commissioning over 600 works in that period of time, they're often in partnership, they're often touring, we're often producing collaborative exhibitions and projects, which are not just, they're regional and national. We all have accountabilities that have to take us out of working within our local context and expand us more broadly within the region and internationally through a range of mechanisms, through publishing, um, through distribution of alternative mechanisms, through performance, through interdisciplinary commissioning. So we are, I think the problem in Australia is that it is a dead end. And if you try to keep artists and practices, if you, artists are invested too much too early in Australia and if they don't have capacity to get off the island, then they can't meet new audiences that can give them sustainability in the long term. And that's you, meeting markets outside of the local context. Yeah, and you mean um, opportunities for Australian artists in a broader context. No, exactly. Yeah. How can we facilitate that as institutions, yeah. as philanthropists, as practitioners? What can you do to, to increase the conversation, increase the audience, really? When, like, um, for example, I guess for a small organisation like Westface, we've been thinking about that and like, the opportunity to like, bring um, an international artist out to develop work here and work with other younger artists so that you kind of, rather than you making work in dialogue together, that you actually have someone else and you can, can kind of cross, do this kind of cross dialogue if you're catching people at the same age. I think those kind of, I guess we're talking about conversation and cooperation, those kind of things where we can actually bridge those spaces lends itself to then people thinking a bit different about where their practice is going or, or what access to other um, parts of the world and funding, etc. they've got. I mean, it's true. Max. Max said something. Yeah. I like um, kind of 
experience that we had a number of curators like in 1995 or something, Max, even earlier. I mean, that's the trips and there was reciprocal projects. We still are doing activities and have relationships with artists from that particular exchange because it was done over a number of years and in a degree of depth. So for the curators but also the artists involved, like it led to long-term kind of extended relationships. I suppose that's the kind of thing you want to happen more broadly. But I would also just say to counter all of that, and, you know, we, we work internationally and we'll increasingly work internationally. I mean, it's, it's also really hard for artists and institutions, you know, there's this pressure to sort of work locally, nationally and internationally. And I, I'm just putting that out there that, you know, I think we've got a lot to get right as a sector from funding to institutions. There's a whole lot that we need to get right here as well. Um, and, of course, I want to see opportunities for Australian artists overseas, but I'd also love to see greater opportunities here. And, um, I don't know, maybe I just trust that, you know, we make the, the deadliest art in the world and that everyone will catch on in the rest of the world eventually. But I just think it's, it's hard enough to... I know for me, I, I want to make sure that the artists in my community and audiences, particularly starting a new organisation, are, you know... Are fulfilled or satisfied or happy with my organisation before I even sort of start thinking about, you know, the rest of the world. Yeah, I think there's actually, I think we don't take um, enough advantage of what we have locally. I mean, I think like there's a lot of conversation and dialogue to be had here. Like, I mean, I, and so I think that it, we just need to get away from this myth that it gets better as you go overseas because it, it doesn't, it's the same. It's just bigger, and and I think it's just that the 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 kind of cliche of the tyranny of distance thing. But I think like we need to set up better systems for, for dialogue amongst artists, for real conversation around the work, rather than just doing the show and moving on to the next one. Like, not that it has to be an art school, but I just feel that something I've noticed that 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 that. That you know, after you do the show, it's it's sort of over, and you don't. There's no there's no real greater follow up or dialogue or or bringing in other people who aren't artists or people from the art sector to talk about the work with you. I mean, the, there's various ways you could do it, but I just think that there is there, there's a lot of really great people in this country and and a lot of conversation that can be had. And I don't think that we're having it enough. And I think. You know, we've lost a lot of kind of critical um, journals and stuff over the years. I mean, there's new ones starting up, but I just think there that there's there's a there's a vast richness in the potential for kind of interesting dialogue that we could be having here. You know, and not you know the the overseas things. It's always it's important, it's whatever. But I just think that we just need to like, and that's what everyone's talking about, the fact that, it, that this idea of like getting to the bigger institutions blah, blah blah blah, it's not, I mean I actually think it's more intimidating as an artist to show at, at, a, at a kind of, um, at like in an artist run space or a kind of independent space because you know that they're actually you're still, you, you're sort of interlocked into a dialogue mm. and, that's, and that's, what, that's what starts to disappear mm. so, yeah So, I think that's the perfect point at which to end this because the wrap-up is that we need to not just talk but we need to listen and we need to keep talking and we need to keep listening and I think we need to keep trying to legitimately try to work together and I think really at the basis of things is has to be underpinned a generosity and I think there's a tremendous amount of generosity in the idea of all conference and what it's aspiring to achieve and I really thank all of my colleagues here today for being a part of this and all of you for generously giving up your time and please ask more questions afterwards and thank you so much please give them a round of applause. Thank you.